Howdy, Tonzilla Files, and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Tonzilla X-Pod at escapingthecave.com. You can also hit me up at ETCPod over there on Twitter. I've got a Facebook page. I've also got a Facebook group. You're more than welcome to apply to join if you'd like to participate in the conversation. <laughs> it's a very select group, a very small group. If you'd rather lurk, go ahead and do that as well. I actually talk about that group a little bit in this episode. This is going to be number 88 you're about to hear, recorded on September 20th of 2020. If you're looking for some St. Uh, Bader Ginsburg commentary and analysis, prepare to be disappointed, not going to get it in this episode. This episode, like the last one, pretty much politics-free. We talk about things affecting politics. If you're familiar with the show, you understand what I'm talking about. Talking about social media, disinformation, this informational anarchy environment we live in, driven and perpetuated by social media and other things. But we focus on the social media end, and we continue that today, building on the momentum we had last week in discussing the new documentary, The Social Dilemma, that's come out. Andrew Sullivan plays a role in this one. He's got a new article he put out on Friday called, We Are All Algorithms Now?, Right down the same line. It's an excellent piece. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend you head over to his uh, Substack website and check it out. A few of the other things that we talk about today include John Steinbeck. He came up again. His book travels with Charlie talking about what it's like to have a reunion in middle age, late in life, whatever. Reuniting with people that maybe you haven't seen in decades. This ties into social media, how we are reconnected with people who we were friends with decades ago, and how unnatural that is. Also talk about uh, Brian, his social media detox, and also talk about gatekeepers, where they've gone, and sad to say, how essential they have proven to be, how this idea that democratized information and democratized opinion was going to bring forth this democratic utopia. We talk about that and what the media's job is. Also, the economics of the media and who's to blame here. You've listened to this show long enough, you know the answer to that, at least in my opinion. We go the other way with this. We talk about the usefulness and the utility of these platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and the rest, as tools rather than simply crutching on them as dopamine delivery devices. Start stabbing at solutions. What individuals we can do to sort of become organic human beings once again. It's a pretty good show. Let's get to it. Thanks for clicking in. If I could figure out whether or not a podcast can fall in the forest, and if Twitter isn't there to hear it, will it exist? I would well, you're be, right. You've, you've got to, you know, you're doing this you, this work, of the, you know, you've got to get the word out about it, and that's one of the ways to do that if you're using it for commercial right. means. But if you're if you're one of the masses that is just using it to be the the crazy guy in the middle of town shouting yeah. at everybody, then it's just not useful. It's it's quite the opposite. Yeah, it's it's. I think, I think the hell. difference is, you know, you're not looking. Well, maybe you're looking for a little bit of validation from it when you put something out, but. Um, you're using it as a means to promote your podcast. You're not using it as a means for self-validation. I don't want Twitter validation at all. I prefer, I like it when people like click the little heart button and they click the little share button because it's <laughs> because it's moving. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, the product is moving further afield. I yeah. don't want comments on Twitter. 
because it leads to other people commenting. And invariably on Twitter, then it turns into that cage match. And people just going back, you're not yeah. discussing anything that's in the podcast. You're not discussing anything at all. You're just sitting there yelling at each other, trying to yeah. be provocative. <clears throat> you can be people, the loudest. Yeah, trying to get people to follow you. Exactly. Yeah. And Twitter's just, even the people that follow you, the people that share your stuff, that like your stuff, it's all a game. They're trying to get you to click on their profile and follow them. It's all a mm-hmm. manipulative ga- game of bullshit. Like, I'll follow you if you follow me. You know what I mean? I'll check out your but stuff. I wonder, you know, I wonder if, if that spills out into, like, real life. You know what I mean? Leave, yeah. leave social media out of it. I mean, do you become somebody's friend because they can do something for you? And, you know, I don't know if that, if that sort of social media mentality spills out into your actual personal relationships. Sure. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. It's like networking in the, yeah. in the professional field. You know, you're, you're, you may hate somebody. We have uh-huh. several examples I'm sure we could share from our career. <laughs> people that you didn't really yeah. like all that much and people you sure. wouldn't have anything to do with in a normal setting. But you're professionally connected, so you don't, quote-unquote, yeah. burn the bridge. They may be able to right. help you later on in life or later on in yeah. your career. So, yeah, yeah, I think there's probably an element to that. Yeah, and the, the idea of unfriending and unliking and all that kind of stuff, is, is, you know, I think it just spills out into your real physical world. Yeah, it might. You said something I don't approve of, therefore you're no longer my friend. Yeah, I've done and, that. And in real life, not just not just online, you know? Yeah. And that's a sad thing. It's terribly sad to me. But there's there's also elements of that, too, that maybe it creates some sense of, I don't know, introspection about what <laughs> who your friends are and why they're your friends. You know, if you examine that, I mean, are yeah. you willing to unfriend someone uh, because they have a political view or said something politically you don't like? And I've had this happen to me. Uh, yeah. It, and I'd be like, okay, I'm done with this person. And then I have to sit here and think, well, you know, we used to get along and we used to have fun before politics and all this. And yeah. in the last 15 years, though, I've noticed that most of these people wouldn't be in my life without Facebook, without this electronic intermediary anyway. And so sure. by defriending them, I have returned them to the previous pre-social media status of none. You know what I mean? Yeah. We weren't in touch then. Yeah. We didn't maintain no, any organic contact yeah. without this ease of electronics <laughs> doing That's it for right. us. Yeah. Like the old high school friends that friend you and you never talk to. Right? Exactly. But I noticed that. <laughs> we weren't friends then. Why are we friends now? <laughs> yeah. We sure as fuck didn't talk about politics. <laughs> right? And, and yeah. I, I've noticed that, that most of the people, the vast majority of the people that I had done that to had no real utility in my organic life, it was all uh, this electronic fa- facade of, through social media. Yep. We, we weren't That's in right. touch before this. That's a good point. Now, now there, 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 but there have been some good things too, right? I mean, there sure. have been families reunited and uh, lost friends and lost family members. I've done it too, you know? Yeah. And both so, of us have, so haven't you, we? Yes. Yeah, so when you're using, um, I guess when you're using these things as tools to connect, that's one thing. Yeah. But when you're using it, as a means of getting, as a sole means of getting your information about the world, right. that's where the problem is, right? Right, and your socialization and your your status and your validation as well. You know, validation, I think, is important too. If your validation huge. is coming from social media, then you need help. Yeah, you need help getting validated by real people. Then a lot of people um, need help. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Absolutely, we've we've grown so far apart as a, as a country because um, you know we stand in the middle of town yelling at each other on Twitter and 
this might be jumping topics, but you know, now it's to the point where we're afraid to say because of the um, organic censorship that's going on. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Afraid to say. You're afraid to speak your mind because oh, sure. of the organic censorship, right? Sure. Cancel culture, I guess they're calling it now, right? So, yeah. So you've said something that I don't agree with, so you need to be destroyed. Right. Well, it's, right? it goes beyond something I agree with. You said something that, that goes against my orthodoxy or the established or accepted orthodoxy that I approve of. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not me it's, as so much as we. You've gone against the groupthink. Yeah, and that groupthink is so ingrained, possibly because of the, the tribalism that we're, we're going through right now, the, the – oh, God – I don't know. It's like ancient tribalism at this point yeah. that, you know, if you disagree with me, you're the other, you're in the other tribe. The and Auslander. therefore you are, you are a danger to me. The Auslander. Yeah. Right. It's like being a socialist just, in Nazi Germany. It's like being, it's almost like, I don't want to say I hate using Nazi Germany. I know that's cliche, but that's, it's always the thing that comes to mind. Like you are, you, you're being cast into the out group. Maybe this might be a minimalize, minimalizing things, but possibly, you know, going on a social media fast or a diet or a complete ban of social media in your life will probably go a long way to helping you become, a, a, not you personally, but yeah. uh, people become more rounded human beings, right? Absolutely. Get, get your friends the old fashioned way, you know, go through your life with three or four people that you call friends one or two that you would call good friends or best friends. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're more lucky than most people in the world. If you have that, right. Oh, yeah. um, this, I, and get your validation from them. Have friends who are willing to tell you that you're stupid sometimes yeah. and that, um, that your opinion is fucked up at sometimes, you know, those kind of friends and let them do that without having to cancel them or destroy them or annihilate them or, you know, own them. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this is the world we live in now, which is, it's just, it's just not, it's not authentic. It's inauthentic. I guess, Terribly. It really is. It's like it, it, the matrix analogy. I know you, I know you like the Borg idea. I, I, I really love the love, Borg and the matrix. Yeah. I love the matrix idea because it, it, everything that we, we see coming through this portal it's a digital manifestation that someone else has created. You're getting, mm-hmm. you're not seeing the world through your computer screen. You are seeing someone else's constructed interpretation that they want you to see. The only you way are. to see the world for yourself is with your eyeballs. That's right. You are an algorithm, to quote Andrew <laughs> yeah. Sullivan, right? Yeah, that was such a fantastic article. If you guys haven't, uh, listeners haven't seen that yet, he's got another article that came out on Friday, which would have been the 18th of September, and basically falls right into the wheelhouse of what we were talking about with the social dilemma last week. In fact, he talks about that. But he talks yeah, about he, this he, siloed tribal fever that we've yeah. fallen into. What a great line, huh? What we've yeah. fallen into as a country, and that's exactly what you were just talking about. That's exactly what we're talking about. He just does yeah. it so much better because he's a pro writer, uh-huh. you know. He's just really, he's a wordsmith. He's astounding. But, yeah. And he's he's got such a great background. He's someone that is worth listening to on this particular topic in particular. Him, this particular topic in particular. Nice job, wordsmith. Particularly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I caught it that time at least. Uh, but he went <laughs> through this thing. I, I talked about it last week in 2016 where he was he was involved in his blog. He was one of the first big bloggers you know, 20 years ago or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he was spending so much time on the internet. He was getting involved in these, these debates and these arguments and just in the, the, the cobweb of cyberspace before we knew what it was. And it took a huge toll on him that he got to the point that he had to give it up. He had to get rid of the blog 
this thing that was making him a lot of money, making him famous because of what it was doing to him. And he found it incredibly difficult to do to 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 to, to, to detach from the 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 digital matrix. And he had to go to this yeah, like this meditation retreat and do all this other stuff. I mentioned all that because he wrote about that. And it's an incredibly self-searching, probing, uh, almost like a confession kind of thing that he wrote four years ago. And it's one of the most powerful things that I have ever read. And it's the one thing that really got me to push forward with the digital detox concept that I was sort of constructing at that time. Right. So now he understands this. He does. He has been through it. He's experienced it. And he was ahead of the curve on it. And so to hear him talk and read what he has to say about what's happening to us collectively, he knows mm-hmm. from whence he speaks. Yeah, he's been there. He's been through it. Yeah, yeah. He's seen the bottom. And he's terrified. He almost as terrified as well, me. Well, rightfully so. It's yeah. terrifying. Human, you know, I go back to human interaction. We've got to have real, genuine human interaction. This idea that, you know, I mean, I guess for me, I was never the type that got much validation for, from uh, from social media. I used it as a way to keep in touch with family and, uh, you know, sometimes some old friends and things for a little while, but those usually fall by the wayside organically as they should, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it, but, uh, but but once, you, once I got to the point where, you know, you have a few hundred friends in your friends list, but there's only like three that you're still following because you've unfollowed little, literally everyone in your friends list, right? right? Not because of anything they said. It's just because you have nothing in common. You have, you, you, there's a reason that you lost touch with each other to begin with. <laughs> this is so right? awesome. I, I let, let these things happen organically. And, and you know what I'm saying? Does oh, this make sense? Am I making sense? I hope so. Let me tell you how much sense you're making, Brian. We haven't been in contact for, you know, constantly over the years. There's been uh, lapses here and there. I came up with this thing uh-huh. from John Steinbeck. You're familiar with John Steinbeck, right? Of course. Hey, of he's, course. he's got this fantastic little book. A lot of people don't know about it, but it's called uh, Travels with Charlie. And he and his dog take a trip around the country. He's getting old. He's an established, famous writer. He wants to take one last trip around the country in his uh, sort of outfitted pickup truck, <laughs> right? Do a road mm-hmm, trip mm-hmm. around America and see what it is. He did this in the early 60s, toward the end of his life. And he stopped by his old hometown of Salinas, California, and decided he was going to reconnect with his family, his, you know, his old friends and his old stomping grounds and everything. And he was terribly disappointed in what happened. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he was writing about everything you just talked about. And I've written about this. I have a podcast on it, actually, one of the early ones. I'll send you a link to it. I think you're going to love it based on what you just said. And he, I probably it, will. The crux of it was is that he was now an old man. All of his memories of his friends were static. Okay, they're from 40, 50 years ago at this point. Life happened in between. There's a gap between his memory, the life lived, and the person sitting in front of you. And there's no way that those things can line up the way that you think that you want them to. They can't possibly. I mean, and and it's a lived experience. You know, I connect with old friends from uh, when I was in the Navy. And, you know, we have a a terrific, you know, important shared experience from that time. Yeah. And, uh, And it was a valuable and cherished time. But now, you know, people have moved on. It's been 30 years. Yes. And, uh, yeah. and now we have, li- other than those few years, we have literally nothing in common. Exactly. So, but, so let's just move on. You right. know what I mean? Let's, let, let me keep a fond memory of you. Yes. And let's move on. <laughs> let's not destroy the old Polaroid. 
That's how I look at it. That's a great, that's a terrific visual. Yeah. You've got this wonderful picture in your scrapbook of somebody that meant a lot to you once upon a time. Don't let the new person come in and rip it to shreds. And Keep, this and to be a disappointment. Yes. It's, it's so remarkable. And I, I've had such a problem with this because I left, I left home 20, uh, 26 years ago now and moved around the country, was out of Michigan for a good portion of time. And I, d- I didn't get back to see a lot of these people. I've gone back a few times and I've tried to re- reconnect with these people. And I find that they don't allow that I've evolved. Exactly. They still see me as 26 years old. I still see them as 26 years old. That's all in the rearview mirror. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and when you, sometimes when you sit down with folks like that and it's nice to see them, you know, nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. Sure. Um, you sit down, let's get lunch and you get lunch and all you talk about is that time and anything that's gone on from then until now is, is just, a, it's just a, not a, it's not a, a shared experience. Yeah. Nice yeah. to hear about. It. It's good to know that you're doing well, but the reality is when you friend these folks and, and you become friends on social media, your, your relationship is conducted through a series of, of likes and shares. And mm-hmm. that's just not, that's just not a relationship. And Steinbeck really, I, I, I highly recommend that book to anybody really. I mean, it's a fantastic book. It's a little short thing. It's not, not like a novel or anything like that, but his, okay. his analogy was that he, his, his initial thought was that he thought those people were ghosts had become ghosts. Right. But he, yeah. when he thought about it and reflected upon it a little bit more, he realized that he was the ghost. Like they had stayed static. They had stayed where they had grown up. They had had lives. Mm-hmm. They, they kept their mm-hmm. relationships and their friendships together. The mm-hmm. passage of time happened. He was the phantasm that left. He, yep, that's right. And that's, and that's been my life too. I've always yeah. been the one to move on. You know, I left home from Ohio a long time ago. Um, still keep in touch with my family, of course, and drive down there and see them occasionally and that sort of thing. But we really don't have much in common other than the times that we grew up. And it's nice to know that everybody's doing well, but I don't need to see you every single day of my life. You know what I mean? Yes. But yeah, I'm sure it's called Travels with Charlie. Yes. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, of mice and men and grapes of wrath. And you know what I mean? Are we talking about the, some of the greatest novels in American history or John Steinbeck? He's I'm an sure icon, he's man. Yeah. And it's, he wrote it late in life. He's at the height of his, his uh, verbal powers, I guess. you. you it's just, it's so good. So, yeah. so good. Uh-huh. And so well written. That book had a huge effect on me. Just that one little section of it about him returning home, because it was something that I was struggling with as well. Like, I couldn't reconcile. When I went back to, to my hometown, I couldn't stay sober. Literally, I could not stay sober. I, I felt like I was having some sort of an anxiety-driven break. I've written about all this. I've talked about it before. I'm not, this mm-hmm. isn't new to most of my, my listeners and people who have right. consumed the stuff that I've writ, uh, written over the years. But I couldn't understand it. it came, what it boiled down to was that there was this dissonance between the person that I was, the person that I wanted to sort of leave behind from 25 years ago who needed to be put off in the corner or he'd be dead from drinking by now. And the person that I have sort of evolved into over the last you know quarter century. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't reconcile those things and I couldn't be there without reverting back to that mindset because yeah. I, these people couldn't relate to the new one because they hadn't seen the passage of time. So you had to de-evolve in order to fit in. Yes. Yeah. And that drove well, me that, nuts. You know, it, yeah, it drives you nuts because of all the, the pressure that you get from society that this is the way it's supposed to be, right? Exactly. This is what this is what a family's supposed to look like. This is what a friendship is supposed to look mm-hmm. like. And when you come back, this is what it should be, and it should always be a Hallmark card. And, and when it's not, you feel like there's something wrong with you. 
Well, the reality is it's the situation that was fucked up to begin with. So you should have never put yourself in that situation or else gone in with a different mindset, right? That's yeah. exactly right. He, he phrased it and he put it so well. I, I think the line he used in the book was, you can't go home again. Once you leave, yeah. you're gone. Yeah, well, and, that's why he's John Steinbeck. Yeah, <laughs> you just, I mean, that's an old, I guess that's an old cliche. You can't go home again. We've all heard that before, but it really, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I've experienced this traveling too, where you, I've had this, this wonderful, like Cambria, California, Cambria, Cambria, whatever it is. California is right near Morro Bay on the Pacific Ocean. One of the first places that I stopped in 2008 on my very first hitchhiking trip, I had such a phenomenal, just eye-opening existential experience at this little campground there, right? And Mm -hmm. it was just this perfect image. And I decided a year and a half later, I was going to go back there. And it sucked. It's (laughs) Why did I like this place so much? Why blah, 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 blah. And there's this this old analogy that I read that you can go back to you know the, the banks of a river the water's not the same the the no. course of events that got you to that place and and everything that was going on around you in your life at that particular point in time is what made that point that place that spot special and once you go back it's that's that's where the the polaroid analogy came from i had this wonderfully wonderful idea what this place was in 2008 and i tarnished it by trying to go back to it in 2010 and recreate it that's it. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, we start to think of our, of our childhoods and hometowns or whatever, and if we're not still living there nostalgically, and, you know, we're only thinking about the positive, all the good times, and then we get really good vibes about it. And then we go back and visit, and then you're like, what a shithole. <laughs> You know, yeah. that's how that was my that was my experience with my hometown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never really had the. I never really got that. I I ran. I I ran and I ran far, far, far away. What's that yeah. song? Never flock of, se- flock of seagulls. Flock of, you know? flock of seagulls. Yeah. <laughs> and so I never really. Yeah. I, I avoided it. And I, I started. I went back and I started having some decent sort of experiences with a lot of my friends. It was nice. It was the nostalgia was there. It was nice to reconnect. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sixty five. I was about thirty eight or thirty nine when I went back. Yeah. So we, there was yeah. a little youth left, and so it was able to touch on it a little bit. But I got lured in. You know. Well, what I mean? my experience with doing that, I do know what you mean. And my experience with that is is. Um, it's nice in the moment because it validates your history. Yeah. Right. The, the, the narrative that you have in your mind of your history, mm-hmm. you get around the people that, that were part of that. It validates it. It was like, yeah, that was a part of, it wasn't, you know, a dream or a nightmare. It was, it was real right. and it was there and we shared that experience and it was good. But maybe the, the, the wisdom you take out of that is maybe it's also good that we leave it in the past. and We yeah. have this, this moment of, of experience and then, and then let that go. But I, I know how that, that experience feels when you're in it, when you get together with old friends you haven't seen for 20 years mm-hmm. and you just, it, it really validates that period of your life and that's healthy too. Yeah. But you also have to be able to kind of set that aside and say, you know, that was a wonderful part of my life. I don't want to change a thing, but I'm living now. This is my part of my life now. And know? and that I think that's what happened. I think once the uh, the, the the glow of, of reminiscing and reflecting and sort of rekindling that youthful <laughs> fake vibe, uh, right. once that wore off, then you're left like, okay, how do you fit now? Guy I played softball with 20 years ago. The guy I used to go hunt uh, questionable beaver at the bar with 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. do you fit into this life now? 
And more often than not, I mean, with the passage of 25 years, and <laughs> I'm a different species than I was 25 years ago. Thank God. Oh, hell yeah. So oh, how yeah. do I bring you into this? Or do I bring you into this? And this is the problem, bringing it back to social media. One of the problems that social media has created is that there is none of that, as you pointed out earlier, that natural attrition of relationships. Right. Where we are now expected, somehow, <laughs> Starting in 2008, when we had this massive electronic reunion to put everyone from every phase of our lives into our electronic friends list, our little suitcase, Mm -hmm. and take them from epic to epic to epic to epic along with us. There's no leaving anything off to the side of the road. That's right. And and these friendships. It's constant. Yeah. And these friendships, it's natural. It's been happening uh, since the beginning of time that people would, the, 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 the relationships flourish, they blossom, they begin to fade, and before long, they fall off to the side. It's just natural. It doesn't mean anything. It's not an and, indictment yeah, of the and person. Some of the ones, and some of the ones where you have a couple of people who are particularly compatible, they last. Yes. Sometimes they last a lifetime. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's how things are supposed to work, right? You and I have been friends for 20 years. We kind of... Yeah. Had a, had a period of time where we had a break and we kind of did our own thing for a while. Yeah. But just a natural order of things kind of brought us back together and now we're, we haven't lost a beat. We put right? forth the effort to maintain the friendship because it was important. Yeah. The people that, that we didn't or that didn't maintain the relationships with us, that didn't happen and that's okay. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's But that's what social media has destroyed. It's taken all of these bodies buried in the friendship boneyard for 25 years, reanimated them, and here come these zombies staggering back at yeah. you talking about politics. Zombies, that's right. I mean, and can you, could you imagine, try, you know, just, just psychologically trying to manage 300 actual friends? No one can do that. <laughs> You know, and yeah. their birthdays and all of their cards and we got to go visit this and we got to do that. And no, you can't do it. Most people go through their life, and this is a fact, with one or two people that they can really call friends and maybe maybe five or six good acquaintances. Yeah. And the rest are just they're just people they know. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's it. Right. But isn't isn't it weird, though, that in the last 15 years, 10, 15 years, with social media, that if you try to keep people and put those boundaries up, you know, these friendship boundaries, these familiarity boundaries, like, okay, you know what? I like you, but you're not one of my close friends. You really don't have the the status in my life to speak to me in that way. Yes, that's good. That's good. (laughs) You know, uh, I don't think that's, that's not going to continue. You need to kind of go away. And when you do that, when you put those boundaries up and you put those guardrails around these relationships, these, these virtual zombies that have come back from the past, and you start to prioritize properly. Right. You start ranking them. Holy crap, you get this blowback. Yeah. It's like, whoa, you, you're too good for me. It, it has yeah. nothing to do with being too good for you. I, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. <laughs> what the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, Exactly. That, I don't know. You know, I, I, I've been without Facebook now for a little over a week and I'm feeling pretty good about it. I, you know, I did go through before we, uh, you know, while we were just chit chatting before we came on here, I, yeah. you know, I did go through a few days of uh, some actual sort of withdrawal, some sort yeah. of, I don't know, maybe it was a dopamine withdrawal or something, but uh, uh, so I, I found alternatives, right? You know, I found things like, you know, news feeds, real news feeds, not, mm-hmm. not garbage news feeds. And, and so those kinds of things I look at and I, 
You know, I told you last week I ordered a, a, a subscribe to an actual newspaper. I read Ooh. the newspaper, Todd. I actually read a fucking newspaper. <laughs> and uh, I find out that there's information in there. You're a lot. <laughs> and, it's, and it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. How, how you do know? you maintain the attention to read a 2,000-word article? And some of the things on the editorial page I don't agree with. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's actually good. A lot of some people would say that's a, that's a beneficial thing. It gives you something else to think about, another perspective to perhaps consider. A different <gasps> perspective. What blasphemy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's. I didn't agree with the editorial, and I wasn't able to unfriend him. How do I live? <laughs> like you can cancel the subscription, Brian. I, did, Come I on. couldn't annihilate him. I couldn't. Uh, what are, What are some of the ones that you see on the clickbait? I couldn't. I didn't own. I couldn't own him. I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the funny thing because you could try you still could try you could send a letter to the editor oh you know that's I'm how we write a strongly worded letter <laughs> that's how we used to I, do it right yeah put on my letter to the editor sweater <laughs> i'm going to write down and write a strongly worded letter yeah but the thing was back then that nobody would see it just the editor unless the, editor, the editor chose to, and the editor got to choose if he wanted to publish it right. right and so therefore you had to be reasonable in your strongly worded dissent in order to you get had to the, make an argument <laughs> yeah one worthy that the editor would see worthy of printing in the paper whereas right. now you just log on to twitter and rant and everybody right. and some everybody would come sees back it. on some people would come back on that argument and say well who the fuck is the editor to decide what i get to to put out there he's the editor you, of the you, newspaper you know, you need those, you need those gatekeepers. You yes. have to have those gatekeepers. Yes. Right? Yeah, this goes- I imagine there are some unscrupulous ones out there, but for the most part, a person becomes an editor of a newspaper or a news organization because they have some sort of ability to be a, an information gatekeeper. That's fair and honest. Right. That, I mean, that goes back to this whole um, thing that I, I think I talked about a couple episodes back uh, where – like 20 years ago, at the beginning of the Internet, there was this utopian sort of vision of how – Taking the gatekeepers away was going to democratize both information and opinion, so you weren't getting one viewpoint. Where oh, I remember reading that bullshit. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was going to be this, just this, this democrat. It's the only word for it: utopia. This dawning new age of democratic, thriving democracy, and it's turned out to be exactly the opposite. Democratizing yeah. information is a terrible idea. It's worse yeah. than direct democracy because there become yeah. no facts. We've seen it happen. We're seeing yeah. it happen right now. There have yeah, to be. Want, I don't want to get my news from the kid who lives two doors down. You know what I mean? No. That's not that he's not a reporter. He's not a journalist. He didn't put in any effort or have any expense in being trained in the ethics and process. Uh, you know, and rules of being a journalist. You just make a blog and call yourself a reporter. You're, no, you're the, a fucking idiot. The only skill you need to be an eye reporter oh, is how <laughs> is to is to know how to be provocative, how to get attention. You don't need any sort of journalistic training, any kind of ethical training. Nothing. All you need to do is get attention. Be rude, and you yeah. can get attention. Gatekeepers are essential. I didn't used to believe this. This is something maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, you and I may have had different views on this. I, not anymore. There have got to be people who are trained, people who hopefully have the ethical fortitude to try to see things as they are and present them as they are. Without that, 25 years ago, you didn't have anything. Now with this technology, it's, it's going nuclear. Well, they have to go through the cost and the discipline of getting the knowledge. I think, you know, I, the first thing that comes to mind, I'm going back to Jurassic Park 
when Jeff Goldblum is telling, um, uh, what's his name? He, um, uh, the old guy, God, I'm brain farting on this. What's his name? I've anyway, seen that movie. He, he said, <laughs> seriously, the original one. Never seen so anyway, it. he's telling him, but you didn't go through any discipline to get the knowledge. You, you learned how to clone dinosaurs, but you didn't go, you, you bought it. You bought the knowledge. You, you, you bought scientists. You didn't go through. So there's no right. ethics behind what you're doing. There's no morals. There's no ethics behind what you're doing. And therefore, uh, that's a problem, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't know the extent of, of harm that you're doing if you're doing it wrong. And John, frankly, almost everyone is doing it wrong right now. No ethic behind it. So you're just doing it to do it without putting any thought into it. You didn't earn it. So therefore, you have no reason to protect it. Yeah. That, yeah. That, does, that, does that fit? I mean, do you think that makes sense? I think it makes perfect sense. And, it, you know, there, there has to be, I think, some, some attachment to – what's the word I'm looking for here? I'm struggling to find the uh, – maybe I need more tea. The, um, more tea. An attachment to the necessity behind what you're doing. You know, to understand that yeah. your job as an editor or a reporter or a journalist, an investigator, however you want to term it, in a democracy is not to make money. It's not to make yourself famous. It's not to get attention. It is to provide a vehicle or an avenue to an enlightened citizenry who can then make rational, sensible choices right. about right. their own democracy. Yeah, and this whole notion that um, the media needs to be friendly to politicians and to the government, this is, is antithetical to everything I believe about media. Media's job is to hold government accountable. It's to be, antagon- it's to be antagonistic to, to the be government. antagonistic to government and, yeah. to, and to hold the government accountable to the people, shine a light on what's going on, good mm-hmm. and bad, you yeah. know, and now it's become this thing where, where, you know, you have to be friends with the government in order to get a seat at the, in, in the White House, to be able to get a seat in the newsroom. Who's asked you has to have to kiss to be a reporter on the White House lawn or, or wherever, right? Yeah. And what, what, are you, what, what are you selling in your soul in order to get that? And I, I, would, I would actually, I, I think that in 2020, yeah, I think you have to change that, that model a little bit. Where they, I don't think the, the, the job of the press is solely to be the uh, antagonist toward government. I think that the job today, I think it's evolved to the point where, I'm going to use the word should, I hate this word, but where the, the, the media should be antagonistic to the ideological co- co- competitors trying to take hold of the reins of government. Both of them, where you're not just focusing on Congress, you're not just focusing on the White House, the executive judicial branch, all of this other stuff. You're focusing on what's coming out of each of the uh, mutually exclusive political cults, their propaganda, Uh their rhetoric. That's what's dominating the uh, news cycles and the the uh, informational ecosystem now. It's not so much Trump, although he does he, he he's very skilled at what he does on Twitter and and everything else. But the rest of the stuff is coming from these ideological springs, right? And that's what's being yeah. used, I, I think, as as fodder going back and forth between these camps. So why is Instead of the media taking one side or the other, they should be turning their lenses around on both of them. There are respectable news organizations out there, and but most of them are in print, mm-hmm. and people aren't subscribing to newspapers anymore. Most newspapers are going under or they're being gobbled up by giant corporations. They can't compete. Right. They just can't compete. No, but, but that's, where, that's where the good information is. You know, the, the, the legitimate right. information yeah. and the legitimate journalists are. Well, I'm not saying there aren't legitimate journalists and 
in newspaper you. and radio sure. and television. We've got a great news radio uh, station over here on the other side of the state. Um, and they do a fabulous job. Um, but, you know, they're getting a lot of their stories from the print media here in town. You know what I mean? That's sure. where it starts. And, yeah. uh, I just, and, and so you, you lose that integrity. Mm-hmm. that you get from, you know, the old reporter, you know, yeah. <laughs> at the news with a haggard reporter sitting at a typewriter. Yeah. You lose that. Right. You know, you lose that. Well, who has the attention span to sit and read a Washington Post article about Watergate now? Who's going to sit through 5,000 words of this? But who do, who, who, who will? And this is the problem because it, it is, I, 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 I am all about talking about reforming the media and how the media should be holding power accountable, not just the president, not just Congress, but power in general and those who would be in power. But the problem comes back to, and this is something I've been harping on for since I resurrected this podcast a year and a half ago, is that it's also the reality of the situation is that it is a capitalist society in which we live. Right or wrong, the media is a profit-based medium. It's a corporate media. It has to make money. I'm 100% 100% with you. Ed Murrow saw this in 1959. He knew exactly yeah. where this was headed. Yeah. That's another conversation. The reality of the situation is it is. And so you have to put some of the onus on us because we demand this chum. We don't yeah. want to read 5,000-word articles. We do not want to understand anything. We just want the, the bullet points. We want the provocative headline. And so they have that, to give it to us. Do you think that starts in uh, in the education system where we're not teaching civics anymore? We're not teaching government class. We're not we're not teaching um, you know high school students how to be citizens anymore. At least in most schools. I mean, some probably are. Um, I don't know about you when you went through high school, but I had mm-hmm. to, I spent uh, I think two I think my junior and my senior years taking full year long courses that had to do with some form of government, right? Whether it was uh, general civics or whether it was you know federal governments or something like that, uh, and sociology, right? Um, so, I, I, and I've heard, and I don't have kids or kids in school, but as I understand it, they're just not teaching that stuff. Anymore, yeah, I don't know. Which, which, which devalues that, right? Makes it like, well, if I'm not, so, so there's no one even attempting, attempting to understand. Now, this goes back, I think, to your Jurassic Park analogy. The technology has... I'm thinking about Neil Postman. I'm thinking about Marshall McLuhan right now. Marshall McLuhan, uh, for the listeners, guy that uh, founded the field of study called media ecology back in the 1960s. He was sort of the one guy who started sounding the alarm about data overload, about mm-hmm. this, um, this, this, this torrent of media that was being unleashed by technology, this torrent of information, and how it's going to change the discourse and how people converse and how they interact. Neil Postman yeah. followed that up in the 1960s. 1980s with amusing ourselves to death and then technopoly. And what I'm thinking about when, I, when you ask what it's from and where I see it stemming from, I think it, it ties into that Jurassic Park thing you were talking about where we didn't consider the ethics of the technology and how the technology was going to affect us. And I'm, I'm not talking about just the internet. I'm talking back into the 70s and 80s when the yep. news channels and the cable news channels started popping up, and then we had the internet and everything else. Yep. When you talk about what's responsible for people, not who's responsible, or why we're not interested in 5,000-word expo- exposés on a topic, it's because I think that the technology has changed how we consume information, and we did not consider how the technology would feed that. And what's well, the you effects didn't, we of don't that earn it. 
Right. right. We don't earn it. Right. So we just, just sit and just absorb it. Even just even sitting down and reading a newspaper is an action. Right. You've got mm-hmm. you're you're earning that information because you're yes. stopping and you're directing your attention to those words on the page yeah. and letting them get into your brain rather than just staring mindlessly at a television news network while you're sort of trying to learn everything through osmosis, which you're not, because you're probably not while you're watching the news, you're probably also on your phone oh. <laughs> and right. And so none of it is getting in. Right. And so that, that's the point. And that's, that's why I'm going back. That's what, that's why it just reminded me of the Jeff Goldblum scene yeah. in Jurassic Park where we didn't earn the knowledge. So we have no obligation to protect it. I got you. I don't necessarily think that the media companies are to blame. I, 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 on some level, Sympathize with them. It's people. It's what we are, you know, we want it. So they give it to us because that's how they make money. But I also. When they deregulated the news channels and when they, when they made, news used to be the loss leader, right? Networks always lost, they always lost money on the news because that was, it it was a public service. It was required Mm -hmm. as a public service, including children's programs and stuff like that. You remember those days? Yeah. When the news became a profit center. And I know there have been volumes written on this stuff. I'm not, I'm probably not even remotely as qualified as most, most people who've written about this to talk about it. But I'm just saying, when it became a profit center, that's, that, that's when, that was probably the beginning of the end. Yeah, and Edward R. Moreau, for, the, for those of you who don't, I, I, I forget the speech that he gave. I, it was given in Chicago. I remember that. I know it was 1958 or 59. But he saw this coming. He knew that the sponsorships of the news programs in the 1950s were going to cause issues with content, was going to cause issues with fluff material being you yeah. know, put in front of people because news and information became a commodity to be sold mm-hmm. on the marketplace. And yeah. you're absolutely right. And when, he, when you're talking about news being a money loser, it was built into the economic model of these networks. They understood that their news division was going to lose this much money. It was going to cost them this much money every year, to keep it, but they had to, so they made because, money because elsewhere. It was, <laughs> because their license was contingent upon it. Right. Their license to be able to broadcast at all was contingent upon that. That right. was taken away. Right. And it became a free-for-all. Yeah. You know? yeah. Did, he, did he do that speech in Good Night and Good Luck? Part of it. But the, the original yeah. speech is online. It's on YouTube. You can actually hear okay. him talk about it. I've got to actually put together a piece. Maybe <laughs> I'll throw another piece of production at the end of this one like I did last week. But I've got yeah, it. Yeah, it up. Yeah, it's uh, but it's worth uh, listening to. It's actually better, I think, than the good night and good luck piece. It's hard to listen to because of the technology. It's it's, it's a little rough, uh, but it's disturbing how prescient it is. He saw this. He was a prophet. He understood it was where 60 this years ago when he saw it happening, right? Before cable news, before everything. Yeah, he's still black and white television. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was on CBS. That was it. One channel. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't take the onus off of us. I mean, I, I've been using that that phrase, it's the people, since the beginning of this, and it is. And the only change that can come has to come from the bottom up. They're not going to. They can't. I'm not going to say they're not going people to. People, they're not going, aren't going to change, right? Well, they can't either because that's how they make money. They have got to give you what you're going to consume or they're going to cease to exist. So this is where we are, right? As long as people are fat, dumb, and happy, they don't change. They get worse. They change, <laughs> but yeah, not for the better. Get for the worse. Yeah, for the worse. <laughs> yeah. They get complacent. Yeah. And we're pretty We're pretty complacent. And you throw the you know the dopamine addiction on top of that. You throw the validation, the psychological end of this. And I, we haven't even talked about Jacques Ellul in this, but I'm telling you, Brian, 
I'm telling you, that book, Propaganda, all of this plays into this because of the psychological exploits that they have figured out over the course of 100 years how to take this need for self-righteousness, this need for validation, this need for a sense of purpose, all of it. It's part of the propaganda model and how people can be exploited that way. It's, it, it, this is not separate from the propaganda material at all. It's all interwoven together. That's why the material that we're seeing throughout these echo chambers can be defined as uh, monetized propaganda. And that's oh, what yeah. we're feeding on each other. Agit- agitation propaganda is a specific thing. It's a kind of propaganda. And we're using it against each other and we're addicted to it. And they're making money on it and it's destroying us. Yeah. No, you're right. So, so what do we do? I don't know that we can do yeah. anything. I'm not convinced exactly. it's not a triage situation here. <laughs> right, yeah. We have to so we want to change. Stop the bleeding. Yeah, or maybe it's, in a, you know, like we, we talked about before, an addict situation where you have to hit rock bottom, or you have to drive the car into the tree and kill your kid before you understand step, it. The best thing, I mean, under, you know, learning propaganda, maybe that's something that, to be a nice elective course in high school. Students need to learn how their minds are being manipulated. Yes. But I think I think yes. I think the first step, um, you know, they, and they used to we used to te- they used to kind of teach that. Um, at least when I was in high school, I had to take a, a, a one semester of psychology. It was required. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I think I think the first step for us is to unplug. We have to we have to unplug from the matrix, and we have to unplug from the board. And we have to become individual human beings yes, and, uh, and, and get away from all that and start living more organically. I don't know. That's just me talking off, you know, spouting off the top of my head. But the first issue that needs to be addressed is unplugging from the matrix. We have to do it. What are you talking? I guess I guess I need to ask. Well, you, you ask me what can be done about it. And I say I don't know that anything can. Are you talking about a, a maker or a micro situation? Like what can be done socially or what can we do as individuals to help ourselves? Because there are answers to the individual. Socially, collectively, and realistically? Well, you have to start with the micro to get to the macro, I think, unless you're, start, unless you're talking policy. So policy, maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's a way to break these companies up, right? To where each of these companies is, of course, if we put them in competition with each other, won't they just become more efficient at manipulating us? Yeah, I, I mean that's that's what you do, right? You become the best at it, so you can monetize it, and then and then so then then they just then it becomes hyper hyper social media. Yeah, because they're going to want <laughs> they're going to want to trigger the dopamine trigger or the the, yeah. the dopamine button better than the other guy across the street is triggering his dopamine button. Yeah, so your social media just shows up on these special glasses that you buy, right? And then it's just right there yeah. all the time in front of you, I, um, which I, I think is already happening. Right. If you're talking, if you're talking on the, on the on a grand scale, what has to be what has to happen socially is first of all, people have to understand what's happening and what's happening both within the platforms, within the technology, what's happening inside of people's minds, how it's affecting them, and what it's doing to us culturally and collectively. People have got to understand that. They've also got to understand the mechanism. First thing that needs to be uh, probably done is these algorithms have to be made public yeah. to understand the mechanisms that are operating within these programs, within these computer banks, uh, these rooms and rooms of mainframe computers in Menlo Park or wherever. People have to understand that. The first steps are that. being taken, right? I yeah. mean, they have to want to understand it for one thing, but let's just assume that you have some some rational actors who who want to understand this. So, so, so documentaries like the social media podcasts like this one and others probably are the, are the first steps to really coming to understand this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But you, ha- but we have to be able to lay out 
you know, the five step plan or the 10 step plan. And this is how you do it. Right. And, and, and that's, you have to start with the macro to get to the micro to get to the macro. Yeah. You make people interested, make people understand, make them at least just open their eyes and go, oh, now wait a minute, this is something's wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and then start taking action. Yeah. I think until, because it's all economics, right. But until we start unplugging, and still, until uh, subscribership or, or readership or whatever they call it at, the, at social media, until their subscribers dramatically decrease and they start losing money, I, I doubt anything will be done. Yeah. You could change, the, I guess you could change the economic model because this is all ad based. You know, the, the attention um, garnering, the, the attention, what's the word I'm looking for? Luring people's eyeballs to the platform, time spent using, right, mm-hmm. is all based on advertising. So I guess if you change the economic model and you went from, you know, network television putting eyeballs in front of, you know, random advertisers to a subscription base, you're, maybe you would have to pay $5 a month to have your Facebook account in exchange for getting rid of the advertising eyeballs in front of pop-ups um, model. But is and, it all, is it all just the advertising or isn't it also some of these things that, that, that are fed to you because it determines that you might be interested in this topic. Well, it, and so, oh, Hey, well, so, Hey, we know you liked this page. I bet you'll like this other page. Well, they're, they're paid to do that. You have to pay. And that's, and that's YouTube's model, right? Right. But you have to pay Facebook. Like my podcast, I, I get hardly any exposure for my page, not the group, the page itself, because I don't pay them to boost it. I have the option right. to boost every single post that I put on there, and then yeah, they will tar- right, yeah. and they they will target people based on the data they've consumed, the things they like, the pages they visit, yeah. all of that. That's why they're ga- they're gathering that information so they can take right. that data and sell it to people, <laughs> supposedly like me, who want to promote a product or or, or a service or something. And right. that's the advertising model. You're, you're talking go to a subscriber model. Yeah. So so maybe it's five bucks a month and you don't have to see our advertising. Yep. You give us 10 bucks a month, we'll take you out of the algorithm entirely. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I, you know, something like that because it's the algorithm. It's not just the advertisers. It's the other, it's the crazy shit that, that people are right. putting. Let me tell you something about the algorithm. <laughs> now let's, let's take this back. Let, this is, this is the grand scale we're talking about. Now let's talk about the individual. There are things you can do yourself if you want to sort of insulate yourself from all of this. The first thing is get this shit off your phone, Twitter, Facebook, all of it, and go back to, you know, your computer and oh, then just leave it on your PC. Just leave it on the PC. Set your PC up as a desktop as well. I had to do that. I can't have my laptop sitting on the coffee table because I'll just reach over and check Facebook. I had to set it up on this desk as a, right. as, as a desktop computer like from 2002. <laughs> and it works because I have to physically <laughs> walk into this room with the purpose of getting on that computer. I can't just reach over and grab it like I can reach over and grab my phone. It's a conscious choice, not yes. someone else taking advantage of your unconscious. And that's yeah. hugely important yeah. is you're taking control of that. But as far as the algorithm goes, there are things you can do. I, I've still got my, my account open. You know, the original one, it's got 15 people in it who never post. I unliked everything that I ever liked. That was the first thing I did. I don't click like on anything. I very rarely share anything even to the page or to the group. Occasionally I will. Like, I like Andrew Sullivan's stuff. I will share his stuff because I want more people seeing stuff like that. I'm manipulating right. the algorithm for a purpose. And if I don't want people to see shit like this, you know what I do? If I still want to share the information, I take a screen grab of the link. I don't post the link. I post a picture of the link. Oh, nice. 
That See, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, then I'm not giving this this horseshit uh, organization a click, and I am not feeding the algorithm. But once you start removing all of the likes, you start purging people that just offer nothing to you other than you know a place <laughs> in the friendship boneyard. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, a zombie. Exactly. Uh, yeah. let them go. But that, but, so then I got I got to ask them. So what's the point if you're not feeding them information so that you can get get information back? from similar organizations that you like, say, for example, what's the point of even having it? This podcast. So, so, <laughs> so, so right. So it's a, it's a promotional tool, right? But if you're Joe, I mean, if you're Joe on the street and you're not, um, you know, if you you have no likes and you have essentially no friends, what is the purpose of it? Right. There's messenger. no point. You might as well, yeah, well, messenger's good, but you don't necessarily have to have, you have to have a Facebook account that messenger. Yes. But you can deactivate your account and still use Messenger. Ah, very nice. You can't delete it. You can deactivate it. And then you've got a list of all these people you've ever sent a message to, which is a really good way to kind of determine if you really want to keep keep in touch with people. Have you sent them a message in the last 10 years? <laughs> Did you even know they were on your friends list? <laughs> exactly. I, I, I find that incredibly useful. So I would not have this account open if I did not have the, the page and I did not have the group that I had to maintain. And I've gotten a All handle right. on it. I don't get the urge to reactivate it and start ranting to random people who don't want to hear what I have to say, who have not made a con- – now, you have made a conscious choice. If you have you know followed my page or you have joined the group that I'm in, you have implicitly, explicitly said, I am interested in what you you're posting, Todd. You have solicited what it is, the material that I'm putting out. People in my friends list did not ask (laughs) explicitly for my political opinions. Would you be, would you be interested just, just as a person who has a a podcast and promotes a podcast, would you be interested in knowing, for example, uh, what other podcasts or information or sources Facebook is promoting to the people who would like you? I do know that one of the groups they associate with my page, I know this because Eric sent me a picture of it, is Real Chicks on Bikes. <laughs> That's the exact reaction I had. It's like this this really hot chick wearing these white shorty shorts sitting on a motorcycle and you got a nice picture of her ass. That's the yeah. what does that have to do with this podcast? I have wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's uh. hilarious, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's crazy shit. I don't really, really, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't care what happens with this show. If it were monetized, if I were, you know, making money and I had to make a living doing this show, it may mean more to me, to be honest with you. I am more concerned about saying what it is, I think, and saying, and not worrying about how it affects the listenership and not worrying about growing the brand and making sure that my <laughs> listenership is going up. I'm giving the, the masturbation sign here as I say this. I don't want to worry about any of that crap we had to worry about in radio. And right. as soon as it becomes monetized and as soon as it becomes something that needs to grow, that's the point where the material starts to be crafted toward a demographic or an audience. Mm-hmm. I You're like talking about brand management, cash exactly, it in. Exactly, right? exactly. And I, I like how it is right now. I would rather, if it grows, it grows. It's because people are resonating. It's because of the, the content. It, it, there's a sense of familiarity, a sense of concern, a sense of worry, and a sense of how can I change this. Well, it's authentic. Yeah. I like it that it's authentic. It's the only reason I'm here. It's because yeah. it's authentic and it's not bullshit. I, mean, yeah. I don't feel like I'm performing for you or your listeners. I'm just talking. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, whatever comes out of my mouth, whether it makes sense to them or makes sense to you or not, I guess it doesn't make any, make any difference to me. Right. right. 
Um, I just want to, you know, be able to communicate intelligently. And I, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like we've been talking about that. There's, we're just trying to get to the bottom of what's wrong, which I think we have um, on so many levels and try to discuss what's, what's the solution. Yeah. How can, how can we, how can we fix this? Individually, individually, it has to, I mean, collectively, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, start venturing into sausage party hope territories here and saying, well, we can save them. That's the one thing about that that documentary I didn't like, that it wasn't, I don't think it was clear and honest enough. And I didn't like the aspect that they thought tech was going to save us from its own tech. I don't like that. I think this has to come from us. I think it has to come from a, a mass awareness on an individual level of what the technology is doing to us, how it's manipulating us, the addictive natures of our own psychology. You have to be willing to see it. You have to be willing to accept it and and be vulnerable to admit to yourself and to the world that, yes, you are vulnerable here. You are fallible and you can be manipulated. You've got to understand that. And then from there, then you can start taking steps. And you nailed it. I think think we have to uh, start to, as individuals, learn how to be more organic, how not to just get our interpretation of the entire world through a computer screen. Get out in it. If you're curious yeah. about something, go lay your fucking eyeballs on it. Maybe maybe we start the analog movement. Yes. Right? Yeah. No, <laughs> you laugh, but I, I think that's it. I, I think that you, you have got to stop relying upon someone else's interpretation of the world. Mine, theirs, some guy you like because he preaches at your congregational ideological church. See that's things it. for yourself and think for that's yourself. It. That's it. Yeah, we have to get back, get back to nature, get back to roots, get back to our organic way of maneuvering through the world. And, and especially when these tools have become, these would be great tools if they hadn't weaponized them. Yeah. It would be great tool to be able to use to get, maybe get some kind of news from, you know, organizations that you belong to. Great way to keep legitimately in touch with legitimate friends that you want to keep in touch with. But once, once they monetized it and weaponized it, it just, it, it, it just became something that it, that is not healthy, clearly. Emotionally, you know, psychologically, and and physically, in yeah, many ways, physically. For, for a lot of people, it's just not healthy. Get outside, go for a fucking walk, and meet people. Instead of messaging, instead of sending a like or a happy birthday message on Facebook, <clears throat> you know, go or have, liking somebody else's happy birthday message because it's the, it's the least you can do. Literally, <laughs> <laughs> the least you could go have lunch with the person. Fuck. You know, go, 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 go have a happy meal at McDonald's just for old time's sake, you know, or if you're actually friends, just pick up the fucking phone and call them and don't text them first and don't text them to say, Hey, is this a good time to just fucking call? It's okay. (laughs) You can do it. I hate that. I, I don't hate it. I know everybody does. I shouldn't say I hate that. But I if just I don't like, want to talk to you, I won't pick up the phone. Exactly. Like the old days. Exactly. I can still screen my calls. <laughs> I don't need it. But Chris and I had a, sound like a couple of old ones. Chris and I had a funny conversation about this the other day because he always does this. He it might I don't know if you it might surprise some of you, but a conversation with Todd can be exhausting. <laughs> so Chris has this thing where he, he needs to kind of plan part of the day around calling me. You know what I mean? It's just like, okay. And then he has to, I think he has to motivate himself and he has to make sure he's rested and perhaps take a vitamin beforehand. (laughs) But he always texts, is this a good time? And it's just like, dude, just call. It's okay. You can just call. Surprise me. Yeah. The the phone ringing unexpectedly is not going to give me a heart attack. I can handle it. I think I can manage the stress. (laughs) And so he did for a little while and it was fun. It was neat. I'd be sitting here reading a book and the phone would ring out of the blue. Like, oh, hey. 
Hey, a phone call. Yeah. And we'd have a nice little chat. Then he stopped. I do like <laughs> texting. There's, it has its utility and it's always yeah. nice for quick, quick hits of sharing information. But if you want to connect with someone uh, on a human level, right. you, got, you, you got to talk to them. You got to hear their voice. You got to hear the inflection. Yeah. Uh, and it's even better to see them. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm not talking. No, I, don't, I don't find, I don't find talking. I've never found talking to you exhausting. I was just, it's a, it's a conversation, but you and I are sort of like-minded in that regard. Right? Yeah. Right. I, I don't find conversations with you or Chris exhausting. I find them relatively exhilarating because most people can't, I can't have these conversations with very many people. <laughs> I, I get this look. I know the look. It's like they're trying to, you know, pretend they're interested. They're trying to give the courtesy of feigning yeah. comprehension and interest in what I'm saying, but they can't because yeah. the, the doe-eyed looks like, huh? I know that look. Yep. I just, it's like, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, how's your day? How's work? <laughs> you have a cat. <laughs> yeah, 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 let's talk about our pet. Yeah. One thing I want to get to, I mean, we're, I guess we're right around an hour now. So the one thing I wanted to return to though, is that uh, you're absolutely right about what you were talking about, in my opinion, anyway, about how early on this tool, this, this connecting tool had its positive utilities. And when used as such, as a means to connect with people, as a means to keep meaningful relationships active, and, and the ease of doing that is fantastic. I met half of my family that I had never met in my life. I met them at, right around the age of 40 simply by, by using mm-hmm. it. That's how I met mm-hmm. them. I mean, yep. it was one of those things that could have been a news story 10 years ago. Facebook reunited these people. He met his, uh, saw his father for the second time. His whole life. You know, that kind of thing. But the flip side of it, it became something else. And Facebook helped destroy some of those relationships that Facebook helped find. Exactly, yes. And sometimes when you find those folks, they just end up being kind of a disappointment anyway, right? So, well, yeah. sometimes, yeah. But they weren't. <laughs> With these guys, they weren't. The relationships were really, really good for about a year and a half. But then Facebook took over. It, it turned into something else. Yeah. And all of a sudden... Since we maintained the relationship on Facebook, we lived in three different states, thousands of miles mm-hmm. apart. We couldn't maintain mm-hmm. it organically. We could call and all that, but yeah. we don't have that foundation of 30 years as siblings. I had a similar experience, and um, thankfully through uh, uh, Facebook where we were able to connect. And then this was uh, the 10, almost 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now we're extremely close and, you know, with a whole wing of my family that I didn't even really know or have any association with. Um, and, uh, you know, and when you take something like this, that's powerful, like Facebook and combine it with something powerful, like ancestry.com, you know, it's just like, man, you suddenly, you're just, you, you know, you've just got this whole field of, of connections that you didn't know you had and family that you didn't know you had. Yeah. But, uh, I guess the question becomes, then are you any more enriched because of, of having these family members than you were at the time. I, I suppose it's, I, I suppose it's different for each person. Yeah. You know, was it worth it? I wouldn't do it again. And I, I say that half heartedly because mm-hmm. me personally, without going into the whole uh, backstory of it all, I had dealt with that part of my life, not being there by the right. time I you know, 34 or 35, I had dealt with it. I had, compartmentalized it and I had moved on and I knew who I was and what I was, at least at that point in my life. What you're standing with. Yeah. Yeah. And when that scab was reopened, it sort of regressed me back to being like 15 years old. Right. Like, Oh, oh yeah. there they are. Woo. Yes. This is great. And they're gone. Yeah. Now they're gone. Yeah. Oh, fuck. 
<laughs> you know what it's I mean? A two, it's a two-edged sword because yeah. you know, uh, you know, I I, I met uh, this is how I ran into my brother who I never knew, and uh, and and so we're extremely close now. It's been a wonderful relationship, but Good. but there's always that little in the back of my mind. There's always that regret, all those years that we missed. With sure, you know what I mean? I'm I'm his big brother, and I never really got to be that uh, because you know he's he's in his forties now. He doesn't really need a big brother. You know? <laughs> well, but it's nice to have one though. You know, that's nice to have one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we look back and we go, man, that's a, we really missed. So there's always just that little bit of sort of melancholy about it, but it's been a great relationship, you know, it's terrific. But so, and I, and honestly, that was because, um, uh, I used social media to find it. So, but that was also 10, 11 years ago. Yes. It was um, different where, then, when, wasn't it? It was different. It was, it wasn't as monetized. I don't remember exactly, but I don't remember seeing ads constantly. And I also don't remember seeing off the wall, you know, fringe news organizations and stuff like that on there either. So Mm -hmm. it just seemed like a place where friends gathered at the time. And then it morphed in front of us slowly into something that we're not equipped to handle. The change I think was the newsfeed. They, that, that wasn't there. If you remember early on, you had, I think you had to go to people's page to actually see what they posted. I don't think that there, that it always had that feed that you would get on that homepage. That was remember that, you could post to so and so's page. Yeah, that kind you of could thing? do that. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then the algorithm came along, and instead of seeing everything that somebody that everybody in your friends list had posted chronologically, wow. they changed the the algorithm came in and started picking That's and right. choosing what it was going to show you. Yeah. That I That's think right. was the beginning, That's because right. people you could figure get all of it. You people, got the information that it decided you could have right based on your information and how people manipulated. <laughs> What they were posting. I think think so. I think so. And there's one other aspect to this too, one other positive aspect to this. that, And I I kind of have evolved on this over the last couple of months because I I was really ready to get rid of this. And even despite doing the podcast, I mean, I'm not getting a lot of value out of Facebook of this podcast anyway. And I sure as fuck aren't. I'm not getting much out of Twitter either. Really, I just the podcast isn't that big. The one utility that I still get out of this is the conversations that I have with a very select group of people. I have to maintain it. I have to I have to put the fence around the barnyard to keep the wolves out. But the people who have made it on the inside, I value what they have to say a great deal. And it helps me to have these conversations, to write things out and post things, have people comment back to me. Show me something I've missed. Send me in another direction on this material. Now it has to be centered I have to control the narrative because I, I just I don't want to get pushed into somebody else's stuff, you know. But well, you've learned how to use it as a tool. And yes, you're keeping the tool sharp and you right. know, taking care of it. Yeah. But as far as people goes and the relationships goes, that aspect of having a targeted group of people to contribute to the conversation rationally right. is still invaluable. Yeah. You know, I, I can't go see Matt in Sacramento. I can't go see Eric in L.A. I think he's in L.A. I can't, you know, go see these other people. I forget where the rest of them are at. But we can't <laughs> sit down and have coffee at Starbucks. You know, we can't make a play date on Saturday at 3 o'clock or Sunday at 2 o'clock, <laughs> you know, where we sit down and, right. and, and, and spend however long talking about this stuff. And so I've met some really, I mean, my girlfriend's cousin is one of these people. He's down in Georgia. He has added some incredible stuff to that group, stuff that I hadn't thought of. So how do you balance that? How do you maintain that? The best I can figure out is just just call the herd, uh, put put the the gate up. The gate, I'll be be the gatekeeper for this group, 
you know, and but still try to maintain that input because without is it, is there another option? No. You know, are there other other options for for you to meet and exchange information? No, right? Email, but then there, then it's it's not a group dynamic where somebody else is going to be able to add something to it. That's right. In that sense, it's still useful. Well, you're getting use out of it and I'm not. And so I've yeah. unplugged from the matrix and I'm feeling really good about it. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would, I, I really would like to hear how that goes for the next couple of weeks. Cause yeah, I, I remember you posted each week. Yeah. I, I feel great now. I remember a week, two weeks I was okay. And then after a while it got a little difficult. You start feeling the pull. Yeah. Isolate. Like, oh, I haven't, I haven't talked to so-and-so. I haven't seen so-and-so's feed in so long. I need to, I need to see what they're having to say. And then you log in and look at it and it's nothing. It's the same old shit they've been posting for 10 years. You remember why you got away. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's kind of like you and I got out of radio, right? It's, yeah. it's like, it's like the guys that get out of radio and leave, leave the radio business. Yeah. They go back and do weekend shows to remind them why they got out of the radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? Oh man. It's like, yeah, this sucks. Flip the radio on and listen to it these yeah. days. Oof. Just listen to any, any, any channel. And then you'll be like, ah. Eh. Yeah. It's still the still the same old uncreative nonsense. Yeah. If you, if you do get the urge to log on, figure think of like one or two people like an extreme uh conservative friend and an extreme liberal friend and just go stalk their page. Don't let them know you're there. Just go read what they've posted over the last few days and that should take care of any qualms, any <laughs> withdrawal symptoms you're having at that moment. It's like uh, getting sick on, on on southern comfort and then smelling it again. So far, I've had no no withdrawals. I think the first couple of days, I had a little. You know, I think I was missing the the little bit of the dopamine hit that you get from it, mm-hmm. from validation of uh, you know being liked and stuff like that. But yeah. I prefer being liked by actual human beings, you know, in front of yeah. me who tell me that they like me and not just push a thumbs up. But but uh, <laughs> but you know, there are time, there are moments when I'm just kind of watching TV mindlessly and I'm, yeah. I I want to reach for the phone and just start scrolling through. Uh, but then I just find something else to do. It's kind of like newspaper. Kind of like quitting my smoking, dog. isn't it? Yeah. Like quitting smoking yeah. when you when you would quit you like have the urge to reach over and grab your cigarette pack. I think that's a valid point. I think I think not only does it because there's a there's a hormonal change um, because of the, the the dopamine maybe even oxytocin if you're feeling loved, but um, I think there's a tactile experience that you miss too from sitting there with your phone and just kind of scrolling with your thumb and yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. The the, yeah. the colors, the lights. There have been studies on this that the colors yeah. and the sounds. Uh, when you hit yeah. something that does something psychologically, it's like a slot machine. It's the same idea that you see in casinos with the flashing uh, yeah. lights and the colors and all that stuff. They design that shit that way. Oh, 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 sure. I just had a conversation with one of the psychiatrist friends that I have, and he was talking about casinos are, are, are uh, masterful, I want to say, monuments to operant conditioning, a human classical and, and classical conditioning. The, like, for example, the reason you go into any casino – the carpet is busy and ugly. You don't want to look at it. Why? Because they want to keep your eyes up. up. They want you to look in, they want you looking at the slot machines. <laughs> you know, that's exactly why it's like that. Yeah. I mean, all that kind of stuff. And then you hear, when you start to walk into the room, you hear the din of noise. All those machines added together make one single noise. I think probably, do. you know, you know, you know that sound? Yes, I you do. <laughs> yeah. And it's all so rewarding. It's, You're just like, oh, let me add it. Oh my God. It's hypnotizing. You know? Yeah, it really true. is. And then you it hear is. this dinging, this bell going off and, the, and it's the thought of like someone won over there. I'm going to walk that way. You know, it's like yeah. Mas- mesmerizing. Yeah, I had a, an interesting chat with Chris yesterday. It was mostly political, so I won't I won't go into, into a lot of that. But I think the crux of it was 
and it boiled down to, I guess, maybe as the final point for today, is that you have to understand what he was just talking about was Brian was just talking about how all of this stuff is designed to manipulate and target some part of your psychology in a general direction. They want yeah. a, a, a conditioned response from you. And yep. it is designed, it's engineered that way. You have got to, please, dear listener, please, dear Toddzillophile, I love you. You have got to embrace the cynical and skeptical side. You have got to start assuming, I think, in my opinion, that a lot of the things that we're seeing with social media, the targeted media, the demographic targeting, this warfare media, is targeted to elicit a very, very specific response from you. And if you can figure mm-hmm. out where it's coming from, the source, <clears throat> you can also figure out the targeted response they want from you. You've got to start thinking that way. You can't mm-hmm. just, it's just, it's just a coincidence. Just the way. No, it's not. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not, it's not, a, it's not, and it's not difficult either. The, the idea of, of training, conditioning human being, animals in general and human beings particularly is not difficult. Anyone who's taken a, you know, a, a, an undergrad level psychology class can tell you all about it. This is easy stuff and it's a big, big business and it's happening to you everywhere you go. There's a reason that the Coke can is red. There's a reason that there's, a, you know, the, the colors in the grocery store are the way they are. Yeah. The music is the way it is. The temperature is what it is. There's a reason for everything. The, the people behind the curtain are psychologists designing it. I'm not demonizing psychologists. They're doing their job. They, we know the key. We have the keys to the kingdom and we know how to do it. Um, and it's, it's, it's not difficult. It's not hard. Right. It's weaponizing psychology. It's the same as weaponizing the tool of Facebook. You know, Facebook was a tool 15 years ago. Psychology is a tool as well, but you can weaponize tools. You can have a nuclear power plant. You can have the A-bomb. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to understand that and and really take that cynical attitude. I hate to to say that, but you do. Mm -hmm. These days you do. It's it's too late now. We've moved beyond. We've moved from this innocent adolescent phase where we can just, you know, kind of go along with things. We have to start thinking like adults with our technology and with the information we consume and how we share it as well and the responsibility we have in making sure that we're not just sharing bullshit. I'm going to get back. Yeah, I'm going to get. I'm going to get back to the. uh, I mentioned in the in the group last week, and I may have at the end of the podcast, but I went back and listened to my old uh, agitation propaganda material from about a year ago, pretty much taken from this book by Jacques Ellul, and I've noticed that the stuff has become more apt now than it was last August as we move towards the election and as we sort of a lot of the things that you and I are talking about as far as this targeted mm-hmm. manipulation of psychology and trying to get people to behave and react a certain way. So I think mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm going to do in the next uh, week or two is start to edit those things down and they need it and start reposting uh, them here. And hopefully, I don't know if you how much time you have, Brian. But if you you know have an opportunity to listen to any of that stuff, I I would really like your feedback on some of it. I'd love to hear what you have to to think about it. Yeah, Uh, shoot me the the show numbers and I'll check them out. I'm going to send you the edited ones because (laughs) I know how you love it when I rant. So I'm going to try to take the uh, (laughs) some of the ranting out of it. But uh, yeah, I'd really love to hear how you uh, how you view that stuff and the rest of you too. I, I think you'll see the connection quite clearly once they're up. Great. Good show, Brian. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. It is much easier to use this money-making machine of television and radio merely as a conduit. If radio news is to be regarded as a commodity, 
only acceptable when saleable, then I don't care what you call it. I say it isn't news. One of the basic troubles with radio and television news is that both instruments have grown up as an incompatible combination of show business, advertising, and news. And when you get all three under one roof, the dust never settles. Sometimes there is a clash between the public interest and the corporate interest. Upon occasion, economics and editorial judgment are in conflict. I am frightened by the imbalance, the constant striving to reach the largest possible audience for everything, by the absence of a sustained study of the state of the nation. It can be done. Maybe it won't be, but it could. But let us not shoot the wrong piano player. Do not be deluded into believing that the titular heads of the networks control what appears on their network. <coughs> they all have better taste. <laughs> all, all are responsible to stockholders. And in my experience, all are honorable men. But they must schedule what they can sell in the public market. And this brings us to the nub of the question. In one sense, it rather revolves around the phrase heard frequently along Madison Avenue, the corporate image. I am not precisely sure what this phrase means, but I would imagine that it reflects a desire on the part of the corporations who pay the rate for radio and television programs to use that time exclusively for the sale of goods and services. Is it in their own interest and that of the stockholders so to do? The sponsor of an hour's television program is not merely buying the six minutes devoted to his commercial message. He is determining within broad limits the sum total of the impact of the entire hour. If he always invariably reaches for the largest possible audience, then this process of insulation of escape from reality will continue to be massively financed and its apologists will continue to make winsome speeches about giving the public what it wants or letting the public decide. We're engaged in a great experiment to discover whether a free public opinion can devise and direct methods of managing the affairs of the nation. We may fail but in terms of information, we are handicapping ourselves needlessly. For if the premise upon which our pluralistic society rests, which as I understand it, is that if the people are given sufficient undiluted information, they will then somehow, even after long sober second thoughts, reach the right conclusion. If that premise is wrong, then not only the corporate image, but the corporations and the rest of us are done for. To a very considerable extent, the media of mass communications in a given country reflects the political, economic, and social climate in which it grows and flourishes. We are currently wealthy, fat, comfortable, and complacent. We have currently a built-in allergy to unpleasant or disturbing information, and our mass media reflect this. But unless we get up off our fat surpluses 
and recognize that television, in the main, is being used to distract, delude, amuse, and insulate us, then television and those who finance it, those who look at it, and those who work at it may see a totally different picture too late. I do not advocate that we turn television into a 27-inch wailing wall where long hairs constantly moan about the state of our culture and our defense, but I would just like to see it reflect occasionally the hard, unyielding realities of the world in which we live. And I would like to see the doing of it redound to the credit of those who finance and program it. Measure the results by Nielsen, Crendex, or Silex, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the main thing, the main thing is to try. The responsibility can be easily placed in spite of all the mouthings about giving the public what it wants. It rests on big business and on big television and it rests on the top. I began by saying that our history will be what we make it. If we go on as we are, then history will take its revenge and retribution will not limp in catching up with us. We are to a large extent an imitative society. If one or two or three corporations would undertake to devote just a small fraction of their advertising appropriation along the lines that I have suggested. The procedure might well grow by contagion. The economic burden would be bearable, and there might ensue a most exciting adventure. Exposure to ideas and the bringing of reality into the homes of the nation. To those who say people wouldn't look, they wouldn't be interested, they're too complacent, indifferent, and insulated, I can only reply, there is in one reporter's opinion considerable evidence against that contention. But even if they are right, what have they got to lose? Because if they are right, and this instrument is good for nothing but to entertain, amuse, and insulate, then the tube is flickering now, and we will soon see that the whole struggle is lost. This instrument can teach, it can illuminate, yes, and even it can inspire. But it can do so only to the extent that humans are determined to use it to those ends. Otherwise, it's nothing but wires and lights in a box. There is a great and perhaps decisive battle to be fought against ignorance, intolerance and indifference. This weapon of television could be useful. Stonewall Jackson, who is generally believed to have known something about weapons, is reported to have said, when war comes, you must draw the sword and throw away the scabbard. The trouble with television is that it is rusting in the scabbard during a battle for survival. That speech was given on October 15th of 1958. What is that, 62 years ago? 
And Murrow gave that. He he went up, and you talk about speaking truths to power. Now, he was an established broadcaster. He was already a legend. His war broadcast in World War II, he was, he was an icon, a broadcasting icon at this point. So he had the status where he could go in front of the powers that be, all of these high-powered radio executives, and give that kind of speech. But he did it. He did it in front of the... Uh, it's an organization called the RTDNA. I think they're actually still around <laughs> these days. Uh, but that's the famous speech that was used in Good Night and Good Luck. It's an edited version of that. Now, you can get the full version on YouTube. I think there's recordings still over there. And you can also get the text of the entire speech as well uh, at the RTDNA.org website. I played a piece last week as well, the Howard Beale piece from Network ranting about the power of the tube. This goddamn tube can make presidents and blah, blah, blah. I need to impress upon you that the things that I'm posting, this piece and that piece, when they're talking about the tube, 40 to 60 years ago, we are experiencing this same crisis with the Internet and social media in particular. How these things are affecting us, what they are going to do to us, what the technology, the technology that was new in 1958 was television, relatively new. About the same age as the internet now, give or take. Maybe a little younger at that point. So they were struggling to figure out how this was affecting us, how it was changing us, what the dangers of television would prove to be. That man right there, Edward R. Murrow, was almost a literal prophet. He saw things coming. He saw the effects that mass media in general, television in particular, but mass media in general, the effects that they would have. The Howard Beale character in Network, I think 1976 or 1977, he saw it as well. The, the influence, the next progression, the next step in the process of turning news into a commodity. And how that would affect the on-air product. How that would affect the ability of the American public to even pretend to be on the path toward an enlightened citizenry. We are having the same discussion now And thank God. Thank God it's finally happening. I'm sensing it more and more each and every day. More people are writing about it. More people are talking about it. Thank God, finally. I don't feel like I'm alone on an island, albeit with Marianne. That would be pretty cool. This is a contemporary challenge. More so, I think, than climate change. I really do. What happens with climate change won't matter if we don't get a handle on our information, our inability to perceive reality as it is, and what that is doing to us, these competing mobs, these competing reality mobs, who are just getting angrier and angrier and angrier and are going to be on the verge of wanting to kill each other soon enough. Indications of that happening already. I have not mentioned in this podcast Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We intended to. (laughs) That was the one topic we assumed we were going to talk about. But the angle we were going to take on that was not necessarily the political dynamics and the strategy and all that, but no, how that event, how the loss of this Supreme Court justice less than 50 days before this coming shit show of an election, how that was going to affect the echo chambers, the narratives, and the storytelling, the post hoc horseshit that's sure to come, it's already begun. The hypocrisy. The naked hypocrisy and the post-hoc reasoning that's being deployed to explain it away. On both sides, I'm sorry. On both sides. 
Yes, on both sides. If you believe that Barack Obama deserved to have his Supreme Court nominee voted upon four years ago, you're acting out of revenge if you violated the same principle with Trump. And yes, you're right. The hypocrisy from the Republicans is astounding. No one has principle left. It's all win. It's all revenge. And this sort of attitude is creeping into the general public, the population, into these echo chambers. The congregational priests and proselytes and ministers are preaching this sermon every single week. We are on the side of righteousness against that evil. That was where we were going to take the Ruth Bader Ginsburg conversation, I think. That's how I, my impression of it. I won't speak for what Brian has to say about it. We never got to it. Maybe we will next week. This is the problem. This is the crisis that we're enduring. We're, we're just on the cusp of, I'm afraid. And the conversation that we need to have about this technology and what it is doing to us is down the line of the same one that Edward R. Murrow was talking about in 1958, that Marshall McLuhan was talking about in that era as well, but it has to go deeper because this technology affects, triggers, provokes us on a deeper level than even television did. And that makes the propaganda delivery system that much more effective because it's always there. You can constantly be pinged with propaganda 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, depending upon who you are following and what the settings of the device sitting in your pocket, how open you have left the cognitive firewall, the door to manipulation of your psyche. This is the conversation that must be had, and it must begin now, and thank God I'm seeing some indications that that's happening. Finally. I'm not convinced it's enough, and I am not convinced that enough people are having this chat. I'm not convinced enough of you are listening to the conversation that's happening around you. And woe is us. I told Brian I'm afraid we're in a triage situation. I've used that phrase, that expression, several times on the show, and I think we are. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are solutions. Maybe there's a mass awakening coming. I don't think so. Maybe. We'll see. But we're going to get a really good barometer reading here in about five weeks. Thanks again for Brian for sending in. To Brian for sending in. A lot of talking today. He'll be back next week. Really enjoying these chats with him. Thanks again uh, for joining up with the show, Brian. EscapingTheCave.com is the website. You can also check me out at Twitter if you want. Don't, don't get your expectations too high. At ETC Pod Facebook, have a Facebook group as well. You're welcome to lurk. Follow along if you like. And the propaganda series will resume at some point very, very soon. Promise. Thanks for clicking it. We'll talk to you next time. So long.